navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 46 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. In this episode, we're going to recap AWS's reInvent 2020. I'm also welcoming a new regular guest to our podcast, Apurva. Hi, Apurva. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great to have you, of course. So since you're brand new, we get to run through a lot of the opening stuff that I haven't been able to go through for a while. So why don't we start the audience off with getting to know you a little bit more? So why don't you give us a brief overview of your career? Sure. So right after my engineering graduation in India, I joined TCS as systems engineer, where I got the opportunity to work for a large Wall Street bank. I was working on databases, ETL, and business intelligence tools. I spent good five years at TCS, and then I joined Citigroup as a SQL Server and BI developer. In the year 2018, I decided to move to Canada. Here I joined Paysafe, which is a fintech company. There I led data development team, and I was also involved in cloud migrations for one of their business units. And it's only September last year, I made a move to Pythian as a cloud architect. Great. Great. Good stuff. Okay, perfect. Let's just jump right into the updates then. Obviously, a very different conference year for all of the major cloud vendors and well, anybody else that uh, has conferences. So is it a little bit different type of, of conference? I know one of the updates that I was pretty excited about was a number of new AWS regions were announced. Why don't you talk about that? Yes. So AWS has announced six new regions, two in Europe and one each in India, Indonesia, Japan, and Australia. One of the things I noticed is that some of these are second or even third regions in their geographical boundaries. So for example, Melbourne is second in Australia, Hyderabad is second in India. So with this, organizations will have more options for multi-region deployments for their applications within the geographical boundaries. So let's say I'm an organization which is only operating in Australia and I want to do multi-region deployment. I don't want to go out of the geographical boundaries, I could utilize that. And I think these expansions are only going to further strengthen Amazon's position in the public cloud infrastructure space. So why do you think that they're adding secondary regions where they already are in region? Yeah, so one reason I thought that you will be able to do multi-region deployments within the boundaries, as I just said, mm -hmm. and other is like people would want to have more options in terms of lower latency deployments and stuff like that. So I, I think that's why they are expanding and it's it's only going to strengthen their, their position in the cloud space, I think. Okay, sounds good. What about AWS Wavelength Zones? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Wavelength Zone is in the realm of edge computing that you want to process the data closer to where it is produced. But this service is focused on mobile edge computing. So AWS announced their first Wavelength Zones last year in April with Boston and San Francisco being the first ones, but they are now investing heavily on this and expanding even further. So at this reInvent, they announced new zones in Japan, South Korea, and London, with some new zones in the US. But what is a wavelength zone? Like, How does it differ from region or anything else in the AWS infrastructure? Yeah, so as we know that with high-speed mobile networks like 5G and IoT technologies are gaining more and more momentum, Mobile devices are producing more data than ever, but having a lot of data is of no use if we cannot process it 
in an acceptable amount of time and get some value out of it, right? In other words, we need to have a way to perform these computations with lowest possible latency. So to achieve this, what AWS has done is they have embedded AWS compute and storage services within the, the data centers of telecom service providers that is at the edge of the 5G network. So the application traffic from 5G devices can reach application servers running in the wavelength zone without even leaving the provider's network. So the application traffic doesn't need to traverse multiple hops over the internet to reach to the destination where it's going to be processed, right? So that's exactly what wavelength zone is. Okay, that makes sense. And this is a newer one on me. I, I'm not aware of AWS's competitors having anything similar, are, are you? Yes, so we do have Microsoft in that space. So they are offering something called as Azure Edge Zone with carriers. And there are big telecom providers which are working in partnerships. So AT&T, for example, is working with Microsoft and Verizon is working with AWS right now on these technologies. So I think this is going to be an interesting space to watch for in future. There seems to be a lot of competition already. Yeah, that is interesting and could definitely lead to very interesting business strategies because, you know, if Verizon, for example, I'm just making this up, I have no affiliation, no news whatsoever, and just picked a pony. But if they choose to deal with one provider, but then not provide, deal with any, any other cloud provider, then that puts them in a, the cloud providers and their technologies, as well as potentially developers in an interesting position. So I wonder if that'll lead to some sort of latency arms race from a data and cloud perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Moving along, it looks like there was an ECS and EKS Anywhere announcement. Why don't you walk us through what that is? Yes. So like Anthos and Azure Arc, AWS has also announced their own service, which will allow customers to run containerized workloads outside of AWS. So that is pretty interesting. So they are offering two separate services called ECS Anywhere and EKS Anywhere. So obviously, if you are having a usual container workload, you would probably go with ECS anywhere. And if you are into Kubernetes, then you would be taking a look at EKS anywhere. So let's talk about ECS anywhere, right? So to set this up, what you need to do is you establish connection between your AWS region and the instances which are sitting on-premise. You use AWS SSM agent to establish that connection so that ECS can recognize them as containers and define your ECS tasks. So the way ECS distinguish those tasks, which needs to be run on the on-prem or outside of AWS, they have defined a compatibility mode called external for ECS tasks. So you define it as an external task and ECS would know that, okay, it needs to execute these tasks on an ECS container, which is outside of AWS. That's ECS anywhere. If we talk about EKS anywhere, this is basically a software installation package they are providing, which will be used to build and manage Kubernetes clusters on-premise. I can think of EKS Anywhere as Amazon's own version of Anthos, because just like Anthos, it can be installed on bare metal or on any other cloud. Anthos has Anthos Service Mesh, and EKS Anywhere has App Mesh. Like Anthos has Anthos Config Management. So similarly, EKS has Flux, for config management. The only key difference I found is that EKS does not have an admin control plane so that you could manage all of the EKS Anywhere clusters from a single pane of glass. 
that's the major difference i found but otherwise it has all it needs to run a eks anywhere okay that's about interesting it. how would you compare this to say google's anthos yes as i said right like anthos is there for a long time now i would say uh -huh. and i think amazon tried to catch up on that because even microsoft had released azure arc and they are very similar as i said right you have app mesh you have flux for config management so all of that is there and then you can have those eks clusters connected to aws from where you can do your patch management your updates and all of that can be done so that's how i would see it Okay. I know it's probably more obvious or fairly obvious to the more technical listeners, but for any of the less technical listeners out there, why is this an interesting thing? Perhaps what is a real world use case where someone might want to deploy this? Yeah, exactly. So there are many companies who would have invested a lot in their own data centers, right? And let's say they have a contract for 10 years with the data center and they want to be running their infrastructure there, but at the same time, they want it to be managed in a better way. Like you would manage your services in AWS. It's pretty neat, right? You have all of the management, the control plane and everything is organized and you want to be and, and you love that, let's say, and you mm -hmm. want to have that same functionalities on-prem. So that's where I would think people would love to do it. And another advantage is that once you build your stuff using EKS anywhere, you could just move it directly to cloud the day you want to move out of your data center, right? right. So I think that's where all of the cloud providers are providing their services to be running on-prem data center, right? Like AWS also had as Outpost, Azure Arc. I think that's the premise behind it. Okay, okay, sounds good. We'll have to see how it gets used. I'm looking forward to that. The other yeah. one that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is the introduction of chaos, chaos engineering as a service. I can't speak today. Why don't you walk the audience through chaos engineering? This is obviously an interesting one. So they have released a service called Fault Injection Simulator, which is chaos engineering as a service. So my first introduction to chaos engineering happened when I read about Chaos Monkey. This was introduced by Netflix, and they also open sourced it later. So what it does is it creates random failures in the production environment to ensure that services you are running are resilient to instance failures, right? When I first saw it, like, okay, you are going and killing instances in production infrastructure, right? That was very interesting. Okay, how you are handling that, right? Yeah, so yeah. That's why. So implementing this in practice in real production environment has its own challenges. First of all, your application infrastructure need to have that resilience built in the design, right? So that it can handle these kind of simulations and failures. And I think not many organizations are mature in this regard. And also it takes time to fully understand and implement these concepts. So I think by offering chaos engineering as a fully managed service, AWS is trying to democratize this concept so that more and more people can adopt. And it will support simulations for EC2, EKS, EKS, and RDS. So you could see, okay, what if I turn off my RDS instance? Will my application survive? Those kind of things. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting and really funny. I, a long time ago when I was in school, I would have absolutely loved to have something like this. And we used to play jokes on each other. We would have yeah. loved to have something like this to unleash on somebody's infrastructure. Like you, I found it fascinating when I heard 
of Netflix doing that. And as a DBA, I just, this was unheard of at the time. So I think it's great yeah. too. I'd like to see it, this kind of engineering or this kind of thought everywhere because we know in the yeah. life of a production system, it's going to go down, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you look at it, like traditionally organizations have been doing the DR test, right? The disaster right. recovery test. For that, there is a lot of planning and efforts involved in that. But I think having cloud as the backbone of everything today, where you can run instances on the fly and you can have things like multi-regional deployment, like multi-zone deployments and stuff, I think that would make it easier to perform these kind of experiments. Yeah, uh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. Another one that I thought was really interesting was the introduction of OSX on EC2 instances. Do you want to go into a bit more detail? Yes. For a long time, we had no cloud option where we could test and build apps for Apple ecosystem, right? So like iOS, macOS, tvOS, or Safari. So these EC2 instances are targeted towards that. So you can provision an EC2 instance with macOS, run your application, do build, test, whatever you want to do, and then you can terminate that instance. So you don't really have to have a Mac machine running all the time. You get all the features of EC2. You get access to all the AWS services where you can interact with EC2. And then you can pay as you go. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, did the update include any information? Like, is it supported by Apple as a first-class citizen? Or is this kind of hacky? Like, what is the implementation like? Yeah. So to make this happen, AWS used what they call AWS Nitro. So it's collection of building blocks that can be assembled in many different ways. So you mm -hmm. can select options from a broad variety of compute, storage, memory, and networking options to build an EC2 instance. So for Mac OS on EC2, they embedded Mac mini into AWS Nitro and create mm -hmm. an, an EC2 instance. So since Mac mini is fully supported by Apple, so I think an EC2 Mac instance would be fully supported because what they have just done is they added network and security and all of those things around the Mac mini to make it available as EC2. So I think it, it would be supported fully yeah. by AWS and Apple. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay, cool. I, that's that's something I'd, I definitely want to fire that up and, and play with it. And yeah. what about one of uh, a very long-standing service? It uh, looks like Lambda had a couple of interesting updates. Why don't you walk us through them? Yes. So there were multiple announcements uh, made related to Lambda. One of the most important one was reduction of billing granularity. So they've reduced the granularity from 100 milliseconds to 1 millisecond which is a huge cost saving. So Lambda was already a cost effective service being serverless, right? And with this, it will be even more cost effective. And this is going to happen automatically for all customers. So you don't have to do anything. All of your Lambda functions will start saving money for you. That's about saving money. The second major update was customers can now provision Lambda functions with a maximum of 10 gigs of memory which is more than 3x increase compared to previous limit of 3 gigs. So this is huge, I think. I can relate it to one of my personal experiences where I was processing a file, which is a large file, right? But mm -hmm. because of this limitation, I had to read that file in chunks and do the processing. Right? Right. But if this was available back then, I could have just read the whole file in memory and do the processing and get done with it, right? So I think it will. you will be able to do ETL jobs and some of the memory intensive operations as well using Lambda. 
that's, that it would be good. The third and another interesting one was container image support in Lambda. So many organizations have invested a lot in containerizing their applications, right? So I have multiple applications, let's say, running in containers. So what I can do now, I can take that container image, upload it to Lambda, and just run it as a serverless Lambda applications. The only restriction would be it needs to fit in the container image size limit, that is 10 gigs, and you would be up and running. So that that's pretty cool, I think. That's really cool. Nice feature. Okay, yeah. cool. Let's let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Glue. What were the updates with Glue that you wanted to cover? Yeah, Glue is known to be the serverless ETL offering from AWS, which also has capabilities like data crawling, data cataloging. You can schedule your ETL jobs running either Spark or plain Python code. And they've been using it quite heavily in other services like Lake Formation, for example, right? So Elastic Views is the newest functionality they've added to AWS Glue. Right now it's in preview. So what it does is it allows you to build materialized views that combine and replicate data across multiple data stores without you having to write any custom code. You just need to know SQL, just write query for creating your views, just define, okay, what is my source? Like it can be DynamoDB, it can be RDS, and your target can be, let's say, Redshift, and it will replicate that data for you. And it can be both relational and non-relational data stores. That's pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty good. Um, I can see there's a bit of a trend in the cloud providers in doing this where, you know, BigQuery can connect to a number of things with minimal work, Synapse Analytics on Azure, same deal, can query and connect very easily to your Cosmos DB and other sources. This is interesting. And, and it'll be interesting to see how this changes the world of data lakes and data warehousing as you, you know, customers move their other source systems to these providers. It's, it's neat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and cool. And it looks like S3 got moved from eventual consistency to some strong read-write consistency. Why don't you go into details? Yeah, so this is one of the most important updates in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, so far we looked at S3 as an eventually consistent storage because we know that it replicates data across minimum of three AZs to protect against loss of one entire AZ and mm -hmm. protects against the data loss, right? So unless the data was completely written into all those locations, it did not guarantee that when you read after you have written something, you are it's not guaranteed that you are going to read the latest and greatest data every time. Right. So that's right. where it was eventually consistent. And to deal with this, at least in data engineering and data processing scenarios, we had tools like EMRFS consistent view or S3 guard, which was a layer to give consistent view of data on S3. So now with this announcement, we don't need those tools anymore. Like you don't need to use EMRFS consistent views or S3 guard to be able to read the data consistently because now it is strongly consistent and they have added this feature there. So this is very good. And I think the reason they have included it because S3 is now being used more and more in data lakes and data processing where mm -hmm. you need to, okay, I've written a data in the next task. I want to read that data and it should be consistent, right? So that's where I think they, they made it strongly consistent and which it, it's very good in my opinion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. How does it compare on the competitive landscape? Yeah. So, uh, 
I, I did a bit of, I looked at, let's say GCS, right? So GCS is already strongly consistent. So I think that was also one of the push for AWS where they say like, okay, GCS is giving consistent view. You don't have to worry about in your application layer or in your processing layer, you don't have to worry about using some other library to get a consistent view of data. So I think that's good. In terms of how it works, though, they have not shared a lot of details mm -hmm. and on right. how they made right. it really possible. But of course, there are questions being raised. If you go by CAP theorem, right? So people are questioning, okay, if you are saying that you made it a strongly consistent, but at the same time, you are not compromising on availability part of it. So there are those questions being raised at this point, mm -hmm. but I have not seen them answering it. Yeah, but it's pretty, pretty interesting that they have done it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay, good. Yeah. We'll continue to cover that as we go. And uh, audience, uh, Apurva will be part of our Cloudscape cast doing our, our cloud updates. So as we find out answers and more about the features, we'll be sure to update you as we go. All right, let's talk about Babelfish. I thought this was uh, another really interesting move on AWS's part. Yeah, this also caught my attention. And uh, where they are coming up with a feature for uh, Aurora Postgres, and this is in preview right now, where application can talk to Postgres SQL database as if it was a SQL Server database. So the motivation behind this service seems to me it's uh, to make it easier to migrate applications from SQL Server to Postgres. Till now, it was possible to move the data and schema from SQL Server to Postgres using services like data migration service and schema conversion tools. You could move the data and you can move your schema and all of that was good, but your application is still had to be refactored to be able to communicate right. with Postgres. And that's a lot of work, I think. So th this service would be useful for that. I do have to wonder what the performance impact or implications will be. Exactly. Also, how it'll handle any references to a system view. It would not be common, I don't think, in an application maybe to query system views. But as a former DBA, I definitely did throughout my work. So it'll be interesting to see what it does. So basically what they're claiming is this will be an additional endpoint exposed by Aurora Postgres, which will understand T-SQL. And it mm -hmm. will allow applications to interact with it using the tabular data stream protocol, which SQL Server uses. Right. right. So probably there is some sort of translation going on in that layer from T-SQL to, let's say, PGP-SQL mm -hmm. in that endpoint. And the idea is you don't have to do any or minimal change in your right. application to be able to work with it. Mm -hmm. The claim is they are saying all of the commonly used commands, stored procedures, triggers, cursor, nested transactions, all of these will work seamlessly. In one of their demos, which I saw, which was interesting, is they also demonstrated how money data type will work. So money in SQL Server has four decimal points. Right. In Postgres, it has two decimal points, right? So if you are migrating your application from SQL Server to Postgres, you don't want to lose that precision. They demonstrated it and it was working fine. Like it kept four decimal places in Postgres. So they did some translation and that's how it was working. Obviously, as you mentioned, there are concerns like, what about if this endpoint is going to add some latency in your queries, right? Will your query hints would work perfectly if you are using them? And all of those things, right? What if it generates a completely different execution plan in Postgres 
but your query was written in a way SQL Server would have interpreted for that, right? So those are the integrations for that, but we will see. And I think that's why they are making it open source as well so that people can also contribute to it. And that's an interesting thing, making it open source. So they are saying, if you want to move away from SQL Server, you can use it and you don't really have to be on AWS. So that's, that, that's a big thing, I think. I think so too. All right. And it looks like there were several interesting Redshift updates as well. Why don't you kind of rapid fire us through the Redshift updates? Yes, of course. So no reInvent discussion is ever complete without talking about Redshift, right? So right now, what AWS is pushing for is to use the lake house approach where all of the analytics can be done from a single place that is Redshift. So they released a few things like federated query, right? So you want to query data from RDS and DynamoDB, they have added those sources now in federated query. So from Redshift itself, you can query your data which is sitting in RDS and DynamoDB. Obviously, we talked about Elastic View, so you want to replicate data from other data stores to Redshift, you could use Elastic Views. And if you want to run ML on your data warehouse, you don't need to be an expert in R or Python. And you could just use Amazon Redshift ML and you will be able to define your ML models using SQL. So this actually allows you to have one place for your analytics and BI apps to connect to and Redshift will do everything for you. Okay, very cool. Yeah, if we go into more details of let's say Redshift ML, so how it works is like, this is internally integrated with SageMaker, which as we know is the place for ML and AI on AWS. So with Redshift ML, what you can do is you can create, train, and apply ML models using SQL. So you can just say like create model name from, and then you define your queries, selecting all the columns which you want to be part of that model. And you define your target columns. And behind the scenes, SageMaker would select most optimum model based on your data. And once the model is ready, it can be deployed locally in Redshift with optimized tuning. And if you want to run an inference, you can call this ML model as a user-defined function from Redshift SQL. It's that easy. And the use cases would be like, if you want some product recommendation, fraud prevention, these things can be achieved through Redshift ML. Okay, very cool. And what about automatic table optimization? Yeah, so automatic table optimization is like, they have, again, built some intelligence inside it, which will actually do the optimization so you don't have to look for fragmentation or you don't have to continuously monitor your tables and Redshift will automatically take care of optimizing those tables for you so that you get the best query performance all the time. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see how that works. Right. Yeah, I think so too. I I think those features are interesting. I mean, as DBAs, we spent a lot of time doing a lot of that optimization. It'll be interesting to see if the machine is better than the man. What about, I I was kind of interested in the data sharing across clusters. Can you go into some detail about that? Yes, this is an interesting addition, actually. So in some of the places, what people do, let's say you have two separate divisions. Let's say you have marketing and finance, right? And they are running their separate Redshift clusters. They didn't really have a way to share the data across different clusters. With this feature, what they are saying is, if marketing wants to share its data with finance and finance wants to share its data with marketing, they will be able to do it. So you will be able to share the data across clusters in Redshift. This is pretty cool, I think. This will be helpful. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think so yeah. too. I think so yeah. too. And then what about, I also read about the added support for semi-structured data. Can you go into some details? Maybe also suggest a use case? Yes. Basically, till now, we didn't have a way to store a semi-structured data such as JSON in Redshift, but they have now introduced a new data type called Super, which will allow us to store such data in Redshift tables, right? To allow access of this data within SQL, they have provided extensions which use particle or particle language under the hood to query this schema-less nested data. So if I can compare it with an existing offering, let's say in BigQuery, you have JSON extract function, right? Using which you can extract the JSON data from a table and then you can parse it. So they have created extensions similar to that, like you could achieve the similar functionalities in Redshift. So this is good because now you can store your schema-less or semi-structured data there, which, which okay. will be useful. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And, and you know, kind of keep more work in Redshift versus, you know, going out to other services. So another smart move. Let's switch gears and go over to some of the SageMaker updates. I thought that Data Wrangler's updates were the, the most interesting. Why don't you tell the audience about that one? Yeah, sure. So data preparation is one of the most important tasks in an ML workflow, right? Which includes importing the data, understanding it, checking for the biases, and all of that. Usually there are two sets of people for that. You have data scientists who are mm -hmm. analyzing the data using Pandas and SQL, and then you have data engineers who use PySpark, et cetera, to productionize those models in a large-scale data processing workflow. So mm -hmm. going back and forth in these, it can take months for an ML workflow to be production ready. So what SageMaker Data Wrangler is, it's built to tackle exactly this problem. And it provides a visual interface to quickly select and query data. It has built-in transform to transform the data without writing a single line of code. It also supports customized transformations. So if, if you want to do some transformations which is not there built in, then you could write, let's say, PySpark code or SQL or even Pandas to do that custom transformation. And at each and every step, you can visualize your data. So let's say you selected the data, you applied this transform, what's your output at this stage and the next. So you can build the entire workflow there. And it also gives you the model accuracy. So you can decide, is, is that accurate enough? Do I need to make some changes? Or is it good to deploy to production now? So those things, right? And once you have that flow ready, you could export it as a data wrangler job. You could export it as a pipeline. You could export it as a Python code as well, which you can run elsewhere. Or you could export it to feature store where you can store it as a as an ML feature. So that's pretty handy, I think. I think so too. Yeah. And then how does that fit into the mix with SageMaker pipelines? SageMaker pipelines are actually a purpose-built CI-CD service for ML workflows, right? So till now, we, we did not have a dedicated CI-CD service for ML workflows. And this coming into the table, it's, it's going to be very handy for ML engineers, I think. What you are doing with Data Wrangler, you build all the pipeline, and then you could actually deploy it and build CI-CD around it using the SageMaker pipelines. And it's going to be, uh, is going to be pretty easy, I think. Yeah, okay, cool. And since we're talking about CI-CD, why don't we pivot a bit to talking about the new DevOps guru? Yes, so 
DevOps Guru is an interesting service, right? It's, it's an ML-powered cloud operations service, what they're calling it. And the purpose behind it is to improve the application's availability, right? To make sure your application is available, operations teams need to monitor the application. So if we consider an example of a small web application running on Lambda, S3, and DynamoDB, for example, let's say. So there are so many metrics to choose from CloudWatch and X-Ray for monitoring mm -hmm. purposes, right? So when configuring alerts, you really have to think on which metrics to choose. Are you considering very sensitive metrics? Are you going to get alerts all the time? Are you missing some important ones? So there are so many questions in building an operations process around an application. So this service is built to tackle exactly this problem. So this service is going to monitor the operational metrics and telemetry data to detect problems and recommend actions even before they happen, right? So you will get insights having predictive and reactive actions as well, right? So some sort of predictive maintenance capability here from an operational perspective, uh, which is going to be a huge help for IT operations team, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little bit different audience. Why don't we talk about what QuickSight Q is? Yeah, so QuickSight Q is, again, an ML-powered service. What it offers is, you can ask questions to QuickSight in a natural language. So let's say you want to see, okay, what was, what was my revenue for the month of January, right? You, you can write questions like this. So it uses the natural language processing to understand the domain-specific business language. And then it automatically generates data based on its understanding and relationships of the data and it gives you the results out of it. By the sounds of it, it sounds really promising, but I think there is, your data needs to be in good shape for QuickSight Q to be able to understand it correctly. And I think there is some training involved inside, right. like training would be happening automatically, I think, because if it's just you deploy and it's ready to be used. So I think it will be good for business users, I think. You don't really need to know SQL or you don't really need to know any language to be able to get insights out of your data. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. And I, I think it's also an interesting move from a strategy perspective. And I can't help but wonder if they're kind of edging their personal assistant. I don't want to say her name because I have one of those devices nearby. You know, are they going to bring that into the commercial and the offices? And then if they do do that, you know, what are the compliance and security and more uh, the regulative bodies around business going to think about that? It's a really interesting concept. And then lastly, they brought out CloudShell. Why don't you walk us through the details on that one? Yes. So I work with Azure and GCP both, and I saw that both of them had CloudShell. So if I wanted to just go quickly and interact with some service without setting up a Bastion host or without setting up something else, without setting up credentials, right, I could do that in both of those cloud providers. But this is something I was missing on AWS. Now they have released AWS Cloud Shell. So just from your browser, you can launch the Cloud Shell and you can interact with services. It's going to inherit your account you have logged in with. And then based on whatever permissions you have, you will be able to interact with services through the command line, right? Because so many people who are like, who are in engineering and developing background, they really like to work with the CLI right. consoles. Right. And so, yeah. So with all of these updates, did you have a favorite? What was it? 
Yes. Yeah, so since I'm more on uh, data engineering and architecture, I will go with Glue Elastic Views and a strong consistency of S3. So those yeah. are my favorites, I think. Traps the reInvent updates we thought were the most interesting for the episode. But because of Purva's new, we also get to subject him to the lightning round, which is great because I haven't uh, had, the, had the opportunity to go through that in a while. So Purva, this is where I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And what you do is just kind of provide the first answer that comes to mind. And the purpose is really just helping the audience kind of get to know each guest a little bit better. Are you up for it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, All right. Let's do it. All right, great. Okay, so let's start with what project in your career are you the most proud of? Okay, so this is an interesting one. I can think of Clickstream data processing process, which we built on a relational database. So we were logged in with using SQL Server as the tool. We did not have the opportunity to use Kafka or something to process the Clickstream data. And we we were like, okay, you have to use this and you have to process that data. So we kind of rehaul the entire process. And the, the process previously was taking like one or two days to process an event which happened two days back. Right, right. Uh, right. It was using service broker queues in SQL Server and stuff. So removed all of that, prepared a batch process with all the new indexes and stuff, and was able to process those events within the span of five minutes. That's a good project. Uh, I, I think. think so. I can. I think so. I, that's, that's. Do you happen to recall what kind of numbers, like the transaction volume for the incoming Clickstream events? Yeah, it was like three to four million. I think in the beginning, it was like in a half day we were processing three to four millions. I think it was good for a relational database to handle that with the capacities we had. Right. Yeah. You, obviously, you know, you'd be very I/O restricted in that. Yeah. But we did do a stress test with, I think it was 50 million events a day. And that solution passed it. So wow, good. That is yeah. good. All right. Yeah. High five to SQL Server. <laughs> Let's talk about a book that's made the most impact on your career. Yes. Uh, as I said, I was uh, involved in, with databases and SQL Server mostly in the beginning of my career. So I happened to uh, read one of the books by Benjamin Navares. It's on query tuning and optimization, where he goes a lot deep in the SQL Server architecture and how the memory is allocated, how pages and extents and everything works. And it was really good. It made me think about internals of each and every technologies which I interacted with after. So if I'm interacting with a service which is pretty new to me, I will always go deep and look at it, okay, how it actually works inside. But that's the book which inspired me to get into that. Okay, that's a good one. I I think I've read that book. I certainly have read a lot about those internals. Definitely a good one. And standing or sitting desk in your normal workday? Sitting desk. Yep. Okay. And when you're sitting at the desk, are you using a laptop or a desktop? Laptop, obviously. Okay. And is that laptop a Mac or a PC? Okay. So it's interesting. I use both. My Uh work laptop now is Mac and Uh my personal laptop is a Windows. So I use both. Yeah. Okay. And are you using iPhone or Android for your phone? I've been a long time Android user. It's only recently I switched to an iPhone. So, okay. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to ask you then, how do you like that uh, switch? Yeah, it, it's going good so far. Uh-huh. So It's been only a month. 
So okay. uh, let's see. I'm liking okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. We'll we'll talk in six months. We'll see. What is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? I would have to go with I think G Suite of apps, okay. which I'm using every day at work. Yeah. Okay. Good one. And then lastly, you know, if people want to follow you or get in touch with you on social media or whatnot, where can they find you or read anything that you produce? So I'm on LinkedIn and I do post some updates time to time regarding things that I find interesting on cloud and data architecture space. Okay, I'm great. on LinkedIn. Okay, yeah. great. And that link will be in the show notes, folks. Well, that's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us. And you can do that by telling a friend about the podcast or maybe writing a short, honest review on your podcast platform of choice. Also, we love your feedback topic suggestions, what did we miss in an interview, what did you like, anything along those lines, just keep it constructive and you can send those emails to me at datascape at gmail.com. That's all we had. Have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.